Welcome to the LSI Behind the Wind podcast. My name is Sean Slatter, and for 30 years, I've dedicated my life to the science of business development. I've seen the impact of our work, which has evolved into economic development and now social impact. Today, I've asked Rob Olson to join me. Rob is uh, one of our account executives and has a storied career. He uh, has worked for several Fortune 500 companies. He's taken companies from minimal revenue to billions of dollars. He's worked a lot of big campaigns, and uh, we're really excited that he's part of our team. Rob, thanks for joining me. Let's start this discussion. Could you just talk about your career working for these Fortune 100 companies and you know some of your early career as a as a military intel analyst i i you've got such an interesting career let's start there sure thanks john for the opportunity so yeah i i spent six years in the army u.s army intelligence back in the mid 80s to early 90s i was in the first corps a home base at fort lewis i really enjoyed the opportunity there i served under some really great leadership there in terms of the general officers and the staff that, that was a really, really good mentors and coaches uh, during my early career. Uh, I transitioned from the military into a, a small company. While I was in the military, I learned intelligence simulations and how to use command and control simulations for command staff exercises. And I transitioned to a small company in Fort Huachuca, Sierra Vista, Arizona for five years. And that company was eventually acquired by Northrop Grumman along the way. But during my five years there, I trained MI basic and MI advanced training for the lieutenants and the captains that were moving through their career fields for their professional development. And we developed a lot of simulation systems and provided professional services to the training battalion and training brigade there that had the mission and the lead to shape the professional development of those young men and women uh, in the military. And that was very rewarding to work hand in hand as a contractor with, you know, providing training, meaningful training capabilities and uh, command MI level exercises for, for those folks who are going to go deploy in the operational uh, force structure. I transitioned from that company, a small company to a telephony based company. Uh, the government piece of uh, GTE, and uh, that company um, was eventually acquired by a Fortune 100 company. I spent 21 years with that group. Wonderful experience for me. I did a number of startup efforts that were greenhouse starts, as well as some turnaround businesses, uh, either harvest or exit the business or develop strategies to, to grow the business. And we were very successful in growing that business from a very niche player to a market leader in uh, testing and training markets for U.S. Army and Marine Corps. Uh, it was very rewarding to be with that team, to watch the team grow and mature, and to really make a difference for the end user, the warfighter, as well as delivering on our commitments to, um, to our customers as we grew from, from the niche to a much broader uh, set of capabilities. Rob, one of the things that we see our clients do often is they'll bring a military or civilian executive in from the government and place them into a business development role. And oftentimes that's a 
difficult transition. Could you talk about your transition from working for the Department of Defense to private industry? Yeah, it's a great question. I've, I've seen many folks transition that either worked for me or worked alongside of me that made the transition successfully and others, we had to find a, a different role for them because that was a, a bridge too far for, for that individual. But for me, I was very fortunate that I worked uh, on a daily basis with my customer. They were in leadership roles. They took it upon themselves to help mentor and coach me in terms of what their needs were. And then I had a, an excellent CEO at the time that uh, spent some time to help me understand the responsibilities of PL, how business works. And I spent time uh, with his staff to really understand what it, my responsibilities were in order to you know, balance the needs of the customer and the end user, and as well as being able to you know, monetize the goals that we had for, for the company. One of the things that we've seen, especially over the last 10 years, is that there's not a lot of executives that stay in business development. Typically, and you, you've seen this a lot in your career, individuals will transition out of the government. They'll be placed in a business development role. If they are successful in winning a large program, many times those individuals will transition into a, a program management role or go back to delivering against the contract. You didn't do that. You were, over the last two decades, you stayed within business development. And uh, I really admire that. It's a, I think industry-wide, we, we see this challenge of executives that you either have a, a natural talent for this or not. And uh, you stayed in a business development executive and leadership role for most of your career over the last 20 years. I mean, talk about your evolution in and development into leading this incredible organization and the success that you've had in business development. Uh, thanks for the, the question, Sean. So business development and program execution should go hand in hand, whether it's your responsibility or it's a team sport with coaches and, and leadership, you have to understand what the, the user needs are, the end, the end user, as well as the buyer. In many cases, that's the program executive office and the combat developers that are developing the requirements, understanding those stakeholders and those community needs and being able to develop a strategy to deliver a capability that will meet their needs within the price or the budget that they have available and that is sustainable, that the life cycle costs are going to be able to be sustained so they can continue to deliver that capability effectively cost-effectively and achieve their, their mission goals is really important. And to build the team that can do that, to understand how to pull those communities of interest together requires training, requires communication, 
And it really requires, you know, good brainstorming sessions and having those parking lot sessions and whiteboard sessions to really work out the kinks in, in your strategy, your approach from programmatics to the technical, to how you're gonna sustain that, how you're gonna execute on that program, on your commitments and your promises. And you have to work through those. And if you use the business development process to qualify your opportunity, and then you use the strategy phase in your funnel to really flush out your baselines for how you're approaching it, and then use the customer engagement, your engagement with industry, partner right, understand your gaps, find strategic partners that can close on that, uh, all along working to your price to win. You can very easily help shape what that RFP is gonna look like because the end customer is gonna get what they really need. And many times that, that's an educational process, both on the government side, the end user to combat developer and the industry base. There are compromises to how you approach that winning proposal. Absolutely. When you assumed some of these organizations, you oftentimes would go in and inherit an existing organization. You would have a team in place. You'd inherit an opportunity pipeline. How did you go in and assess these organizations as the new leader? What were some of the things that you were looking at early on and building your overall strategy for the organization? What, what was your process? Great question. Being in a Fortune 100 company that was actively acquiring and realigning <laughs> capabilities within their own portfolio over 21 years, I had the privilege of leading groups that were either heritage or legacy groups that had to be revamped strategically and focus to new entities coming on board and having a successful integration of those folks into the portfolio within that family, that line of business or that company within that corporation. I would do one-on-one -on -one sessions uh, to get to know the individuals, their strengths and weaknesses. I would look at the programs, the core competencies. I would look at you know where we were in the market segment in terms of our competitors, kind of market share we had, uh, whether it was a niche or we, you know, we had our fair share of the market and growth was going to be difficult without new capabilities. What are the gaps? So strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, doing a, a spot analysis, and then really assessing the maturity of the funnel. Some of the funnels I inherited were very grandiose, very optimistic, uh, <laughs> but they were in the cloud and they really hadn't gone through a process of qualifying them. You know, for me, it was, does the customer know you? Do they listen to you? And do they trust you? And the way I could gauge that was just in looking at past RFPs and proposals. Did the RFPs really speak to our core competencies and our strengths? And did we respond with our core competencies and strengths? Was our approach in line with what the customer is asking for. So trying to gauge, did we really understand the market we were in and how that customer buys? And did we put forth the right approach? So then you could start to really adjudicate your funnel and start honing in on your high probability win 
opportunities. And those are the ones that you start to invest in and move through the funnel, through strategy phase, ultimately to a bid, no bid, and to a winning successful proposal effort. I loved what you said about this relationship with the customer. So many times we see opportunity pipelines that are disconnected with both the customer's needs and the relationship. And a good question that a leader of an organization can ask his or her team is, does your customer know they are in your opportunity pipeline? And if not, you've got, a, you've got an issue, right? I mean, that's, that's a very basic litmus test. Does the customer know you have them in your opportunity pipeline? And I mean, as simple as that is, there, there are so many opportunity pipelines that we look at and analyze and it's just nonsense. How would you communicate that back to the executive team that I'm sure that when you would inherit some of these opportunity funnels or pipelines that once you did the analysis and said, you know, two thirds of this is irrelevant. How would you communicate that back to the leadership team? We see this a lot and it is, that's difficult. My approach would be to prioritize the opportunities, rank them uh, using a, a simple DAR analysis type methodology. So you could weight the opportunities, the criteria in terms of how you would prioritize the opportunities and then talk about the, the strengths of why these are your top two or top three uh, opportunities. Let the rest just kind of fall as, as, as it may. Really didn't have to spend a lot of time on that. So you focus on the ones that really matter and then lay out some high-level strategies, objectives, actions that need to be taken and expected results. So if we do what I call the SOAR chart that I think other companies in other industries use, if you lay out a simple SOAR chart or two for that opportunity, here's a near-term tactical activities that we have to do. This is expected results to help qualify that opportunity, to help move it through the gated business development funnel process so we can make good investment decisions about do we ramp up, do we start building up our capture management team, and do we start you know, reaching out and making commitments to teammates and build that team. You know, Early on, uh, I would like to engage the customer and the combat developer making those Office calls is really important to understand what their limits are on risk, how open they are to new technologies. Are they just trying to answer the mail with the budget that they have? Are they really trying to make a change? So you have to really gauge the decision makers on how far they want to push the envelope for satisfying those requirements. Because the end to that individual that's a three-year program. They have three years in that chair. They want to be successful and they have finite resources and people. So understanding their team and, and their limits in terms of what they're going to be able to evaluate and what kind of risk they're willing to accept in innovation and new ideas on how to satisfy that requirement. So those early customer engagements, sales call planning, understanding what it is that you want from that call when you meet, 
And then how to translate that back into how do I adjust my strategy? What's the approach? Should we be bidding this opportunity or do we move on to the next in the funnel? So when you would assume a new organization, when you would go in and lead this group, you would make an assessment, you'd build a strategy, create a process, spend some time training, and then move into more of a tactical phase of what we term capture. So let's talk about that tactical piece. You know, so much of, especially now where these proposals are 30 pages, the capture piece, the relationship with the customer is so critical. And we've found, especially in the last two or three years, as these organizations have gone from these large, multi-volume, 5,000-page proposals to 30-page technical proposal, if you do not have that relationship with the customer and really understand his or her requirements and and challenges, you're not going to win this opportunity. How would you advise your team in connecting with these government customers in a major campaign? Excellent, excellent question. You engage at all levels. First of all, we, we try to do a good job of understanding the source selection evaluation board. And I think we have a pretty good handle on who the selection authority figures are, but it is the GS 12s, 13s, and 14s that are going to evaluate your proposal against the RFP requirements. Right. So you have to have relationships with those individuals. And the way I've done it in the past is we would create ethical forums in which we could engage the customer in a mutual benefit type environment. Let's say, let's have a, a training exercise. We're going to bring in, you know, company A, B, and C, and we're going to share new technologies on networking or new technologies on mobile computing. And we're going to share that with you as an educational forum, but it really is an opportunity to have a dialogue about the technologies, the maturity of them, how they may apply to your domain and your problem set. So now they're building a rapport and they're building a working relationship with folks that they're going to recognize on an org chart or an orals presentation that I'm going to work with an individual. I've had a good dialogue over the last couple of forums uh, that we've had, or we do a deep dive in our capabilities and then we start getting into our understanding of problem set and we start getting some feedback with one-on-one sessions with the customer. So really targeting the right audience and taking that on the road. So you have the acquisition community now on board with what the realm of possible is. Now you have to go out and talk to combat developers and say, hey, here's what we're thinking. Here's how we view this problem. And here's how we would solve it. And this is what you get from, from this solution. So you have, to, you have to have that active campaign communicating what you're getting, the so what of your solution. Because a lot of times it comes down to, you know, price and are you compliant? You had a good story. But if you have a great offering and no one understands it, it's simply written off as high risk, too complicated, or I just I just don't get it. I'm much more comfortable with this very simple story over here. And they meet my price target. So I'm going to award it to that company because they had a great 
solution and it was never socialized. It was never communicated to the stakeholders in those communities. To me, that's really important in your campaign. And the capture manager, he or she is the captain of that team. And it's very important that that person is dedicated full time once you commit to a strategy phase and you start growing that team as needed and build it up so that you can meet all of your tactical and strategic objectives going into proposal that you have your baselines that you need to write an effective story that meets your, your price to win. One of the things that we often see, and, and you had touched on this, I, I'd like to explore this with you a little more. We often see our clients pursuing an opportunity in which the capture strategy, they are trying to determine who the real decision makers are in this campaign. And you said it so well, oftentimes we, we even see clients that mistakenly believe that the acquisition lead is the decision maker. And, or even if they can determine through the acquisition strategy plan, who the, the source selection authority is, the SSA, they often mistakenly believe that that SSA is the decision maker. And what we spend a lot of time working is who are the influencers and the, the real decision makers? You, you talked about the GS 13s, 14s, 15s that are influencing the executive team and the acquisition team on this decision. One of the things that LSI has excelled at for 50 years is this capture strategy where we have relationships with the entire team, the, the contracting team, the engineering team, the program team, and then at the top level with the source selection authority, which may be a committee or it may be an individual. And I think that this is becoming increasingly important where the relationship really emanates from those organizations. And it's difficult for someone to do that if they're not on site and have that close connection with the customer. And so, you know, talk about how you would take on these campaigns and, and try to get that type of relationship at all of these levels, at the program level, at the engineering level, at the with the acquisition team, with the source, source selection authority? Thanks for the question. So if you didn't have, let's say I was going into a new customer and, and it was truly a greenhouse or it was an adjacent market strategy for us. And I personally did not have a relationship with that command or that PEO. I would reach out and leverage consultants. So when I was in my Fortune 100 company, we had resources that would allow us to bring on a consultant that came from that community. I would partner with them. I would bring them up to speed. I'd spend a couple hours letting them know what we're trying to do. 
you know, our initial thoughts about the market and what we could bring to bear uh, for the problem that we we're addressing. And then they would make recommendations, suggestions about who we'd need to see and, and what understanding what those individuals' personas were like, their hot buttons, you know, what their interests were so that you could, you know, focus your communication and what you're looking for with that one-on-one dialogue with that, that particular uh, individual. So that when you went in, that sales call planning up front is really important. You went in that you didn't waste either party's time, that you could really get down to business and, and make a difference to help inform your decision about whether you're going to invest in an IRAD, whether you're going to partner, who you're going to partner with, and why it makes sense in terms of your offering to the, the problem. But I would work with consultants. I would also work with teammates. There's reason. Sometimes there'd be a reason to partner with another company because that company was either being led or had key folks that knew that domain. And you would work with that those individuals to you know, refine your strategy and you'd go do a, a joint sales call, if you will. And you start to build that relationship. And if you get that trust with that individual, he or she can be a champion for you, at least create opportunities and encourage their team to meet with you and to meet with industry. So it wasn't like that you were looking for special time or access. It was, hey, we want you to talk to industry. I want you to talk to my competitors. I want you to know what they are bringing to the table so that you're well-informed that our solution's better. So, you know, encouraging the government to engage industry is really important because they're not all comfortable with doing that. Many of them are very comfortable with just doing their part and pushing it out the door and having industry respond. And I don't personally uh, find that very rewarding or very (laughs) successful uh, in terms of pursuing business. You really have, it's a team sport and that's, that's all sides of the facet when you're dealing with DOD acquisitions. So engagement early and often and you do that by bringing in consultants that come from that community or partnering with teammates that have that, those individuals that can help flush out your team and your domain knowledge. One of the things that we talk about with our clients is how different customers are in, even within the same agency. You may say, we, we've got a great relationship with the Army, for example, and Yet the chemistry and the approach with TACOM or AMCOM or CECOM or, you know, some of the Army Futures Command, every one of those installations and organizations are so different, even within the the same agency. I mean, going from TACOM into a pursuing an HHS opportunity is even, it's a, there's an incredible difference, even though these customers are all operating under the FAR, their methodology, their strategy, their approach is so different. And having that relationship on site with the customers at these various levels so that you really understand the customer's requirements, they understand your capabilities, and you can marry that together in an overall capture strategy, a capture plan, and then transition into the proposal phase is so critical to 
the success and, and ensuring that you win these opportunities. Let me ask you about this. What was your approach to competitive intelligence in pursuing a large campaign? Good question. So we had a couple of in-house resources available to us. So it was really good to, you know, if we were new to a customer, I'd want to know as much as I could about the incumbents. And you can do that through FOIAs. You can do that by just researching their contracts and looking at how they won the contracts, what they're delivering, how well they're performing. You can also do that through your sales calls, your customer engagements. Without directly asking it, you can ask about challenges and gaps in your current solution sets. You can really start to understand what an incumbent or competitor is not satisfying by just you know asking the customer what's keeping them up at night, what's you know what challenges they're having, and without putting them in a position to really you know talk out of school, if you will, about their current team that's supporting them. So in-house resources, there's a lot of databases that we, you know, LSI has access to, but my previous employer also had access to. And those help with, you know, understanding the complete market, if you will, and who's available. Also, just understanding the capabilities that the customer, that other competitors can bring to the table. And that's people, places, and, and technologies that they can bring to bear. Past performance is really important and, and plays in terms of appetite for risk. You know, is it relevant? Have you done it before? Can you deliver on what you're promising in your proposal? So really, you know, building a good understanding of your past performance and what's relevant to help alleviate any concerns of risk, especially if you're new to a PM shop. And if you're not new and you've had some challenges in execution, being able to have an open dialogue about what you've done to rectify any gaps or challenges in execution and to communicate how you will not you know, repeat that or how you get through that. And so having a transparent discussion with your customers during execution is really important to winning new business because they're gonna know, hey, I've worked with this company before when they did have a, a tough technology challenge or supply chain issue, it wasn't a surprise to me. They were very open about it. They showed me what they were gonna do about it. They tracked it as a risk. They had a mitigation in place. They had a contingency plan and they executed it. Those things really help make you stand out from your, your competitors. So when you start starting to shape who you team with, how you team and why you're teaming, those are things that you have to work into your messaging when you're doing your sales calls. And it also helps with when you're doing work share and teaming agreements that you have value-added work for each of your teammates. They understand the work they're gonna perform when they win, and they understand where their lanes are, where they're gonna be able to grow and meet their strategic visions within each of their companies, especially for small businesses and mid-sized businesses. They wanna know where they're gonna grow, not just help you win, but execute and achieve their growth. 
Love it. And we're going to come back and talk about past performance, program execution in a minute. Uh, let's bookmark that. Some other questions that I have about your historical approach to capture is what was your gate process in making a bid no bid decision? So our, our the gate process is very similar to you know what Shipley provides in terms of training, SMNA similar training. I think each company that I've worked with um, has some adaptation of those processes. But my experience has been you do an opportunity pursuit review, and that's when you very quickly um, identify your gaps in information, what you know about the program, what you know about the requirements funding, current incumbents, or is this a new start? So that starts to drive your tactical gathering, if you will, of information and your early actions and expected results. So you move through the strategy phase and you have a strategy pursuit review. If you've given the green light to move forward after an opportunity pursuit review, and you have, depending on how long the life cycle is in this acquisition, I've had two-year life cycles, and I've had, you know, two month life cycles. So it really depends on how long that strategy phase is, how far out the RFP, draft RFP is going to be. But you'll have at least one, if not two or three strategy reviews till you get to a point where you're ready for a bid, no bid. And that's generally right before or right after a draft RFP is released because you're really ramping up the team and you're starting to really increase your, your investments. I've had bid, no bid decisions left of draft RFPs, especially if we were looking at a, a you know, a, an IRAD effort where we're going to invest, you know, significant new business funds. And I wanted to mature the technology or burn down the risk in some type of innovation. So it really depends on your strategy and your investment profile for the opportunity. But ultimately, you get to a bid decision. And along the way, you should have a, you know, an initial price review. You know, what is my price to win? Those are parallel efforts. Can I deliver a technical solution within the customer's funding? Is it, does it meet the cost realism factors? And can I deliver in that price to win range? Can I get to a technical solution? So you start to shape the, your baseline reviews going forward. Uh, and then you get into your color reviews for your, your proposals. So one of the things that uh, I think has been a really interesting piece of our business over the years is the interface between the capture team and then moving into the proposal phase and the role that the capture team plays and the interface between the capture work and the proposal development work. Talk about how you manage that and those personalities, because I, th I think it's an interesting part of our business. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, you know, I think you opened up the podcast with the science, but there's a, a lot of art involved in the process of business development and capture. Ultimately, my experience has been the capture manager, he or she is king or queen. They're leading, they're the, the coach for this team sport. And 
they hold, they're in it for the, all four quarters of the game. Coach does not leave the field until the game is complete. So the capture manager stays with the pursuit, the campaign plan, the capture activities. And when we shift into proposal management, if you will, the proposal manager takes charge of that product. The capture manager is still owns and accountable and responsible for the strategy, the story, the price to win. So that individual is still driving and leading the team and making sure all these pieces come together. But from a proposal product, it's really important that you have a proposal manager in place driving to the production of that product. And he or she is going to be able to help the capture manager ensure that the story is consistent across the volumes and the cost realism is addressed in the narratives in the cost volume. And it ticks and ties with your management and your technical approach and your past performance. Always driving for compliance, but ensuring that your story is easily understood, your offerings understood, and the risks are understood as well as well mitigated in terms of your offering. So those things come together, but those two key individuals, along with your, your volume leads, will get you across the, the finish line to a winning score. So let's talk about this. So you are working this major campaign. You've done all of the capture work up front. The relationship is solid. You have ensured that you have a connection with all of the decision makers and the influencers of the decision makers. You have really understood what the customer's requirements are, their issues. You've educated the customer on your capabilities, and now we're ready to build this proposal. What would you look at, and and how would you build out these proposal teams in these major campaigns? One of the things that we run into all the time is this fantasy by uh, business development executives that, oh, we're, we're just going to pull people off of their day jobs and have them work these proposals on at night and on the weekends. And talk to me about how you would create winning proposal teams. It was my experience that the individuals that were working the proposal, the key individuals were brought in during the campaign plan, the capture activities. So your technical lead or your chief architect started uh, early on in your solutioning for your campaign and your messaging in terms of being able to socialize an approach or multiple approaches so you can narrow it down to uh, a winning technical solution. That individual stayed on throughout the proposal and would start the program that would be part of the execution of that program. So picking those individuals is really important to communicate and get buy-in with not only the individual, because they have to be willing and want, and they have to want to work this new effort and understand that they're going to stay with it. It's not a part-time job for proposals. So as you ramp up your team, 
leading into that, we would work with engineering and program management to ensure that the folks that are rolling out of their current execution into this proposal, that they had their team was amply staffed to meet the daytime requirements. So these individuals were full-time. When we moved them into a proposal center, they were working full-time. It was a 30 days, 45 days, whatever that timeline was to get a proposal. There was never enough time, but you had to, you had to meet your schedule, right? You got to do your deliverables. And as long as you follow that process to produce your proposal product and stay on time, you'll, you'll deliver a quality product. But that was their day job. If they had time, they, there were things that they would have to respond to for their current commitments. That really was a second priority. And it just, it was the way it had to be because proposals are intense. You have a short period of time to get your winning story pulled together. And it, and it really has to meet or exceed everything that's in the RFP. And that takes all of your time and attention. So it's, it's really getting that team to buy into the vision. Why are we pursuing the opportunity in the first place? What does it mean for them, for that individual? You know, how many jobs is that creating? How does that have long-term jeopardy for us in that market space? And then think about what we're delivering for the warfighter. That motivates and drives a lot of people about, hey, if I work on this program, I'm gonna be part of this. And that's gonna make a difference because I have family that's still in the service. I have a brother or a sister or, or my dad's still in. So those things, everything that you are doing has to have a purpose. It's not just about you know, making revenue and sales. It's about job satisfaction. It's about delivering something that matters to the end user. So communicating that the capture manager, that's his or her role. And the program manager that you're bringing on board has to have buy into that. The technical lead, your chief architect, has to have buy into that. And it makes a world of difference. The story just clicks so much easier. And each person understands their role on the team. They can very quickly deliver the context and content that you're looking for. And a picture is worth a thousand words. If you can develop those graphics and make them simple to convey your solution, it makes it so much easier for the source selection evaluation board to understand what it is that they're looking at and reading. I love that. I mean, everybody that has worked proposals with me knows that I have a strategy that every page has artwork on it. And a big part of our success over the years has ensuring that we have relevant and uh, compelling artwork. We know we have done this and have interfaced with the source selection authorities. We know that these government teams, they will not spend the time to read every page of the proposal. And I mean, it's frustrating as a company investing all of this money into a proposal, knowing that your customer is not going to read every page. And yet you have spent all of that time putting together this product. I've often said 
think of this as an executive that is very busy and even a 30-page proposal, if that executive has receives 10 proposals that are 30 pages, that's 300 pages, we know that they allocate a few hours as the SSA to read these proposals and they're going to go through and they're going to read the executive summary and they're going to pull out key points in the document that will be memorable and oftentimes that is artwork on the page. So the other thing that we're seeing that's a trend now is, as you know, it, it used to be that we would receive these RFPs with these huge technical proposals. Sometimes the, the technical proposal would have a page limit of 300 pages or 500 pages. We just not that long ago still have been putting together these very convoluted, complex, multi-volume proposals. We did one recently that was a, that turned out to be about 5,000 pages. But the trend, as you know, has shifted to less than 100 pages for some of these proposals. And what we see from our clients is this idea, it's, you know, it's 100 pages. We're not going to invest in bringing in a proposal team dedicated to this. We'll just have our, we'll have the capture team do this. We'll have program leads from other programs. We'll pull them off their day jobs and have them do this. And it's a, it's been a failure. We just saw a major contract lost with this theory that we can and this was a huge campaign. The company, the client of ours invested heavily in this opportunity, and yet they failed in the proposal because they thought we can do this. We can, we'll, we'll just put this together. It's a hundred pages. We'll do this in a few weeks time. They did not invest in the steps, the, the typical steps, the typical process to ensure that they were going to win this opportunity. And I mean, talk about how the shift in the proposal volume, the, these massive proposals now down to 100-page proposals for a billion-dollar opportunity has changed the thinking in the industry around proposal development. So, Sean, there are no shortcuts if you will, right. <laughs> to, to putting together a, a compelling uh, winning proposal. You really, you know, you really have to work left of the RFP to socialize your solution. So, like you said, not every page is going to get read. In fact, when your proposal is evaluated, many times your proposal is chopped up and sections are sent off in a silo and one individual will look at the logistics piece. They won't get to see the programmatic approach. They won't even get to see the overall architecture. They're just looking at the logistics story and the illities of your offering without even getting a big picture of what it is that you're delivering. So if you have that in mind that each section has to stand on its own and the story has to flow through that document because they may not read 
the executive summary. They may get it, but they may not read the executive summary. Only a handful of people read the executive summary that you worked a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of hours, and a lot of iterations to get the executive summary just right. And they're very important because they do set the stage for your proposal, but not everyone gets to read it. Even if they want to, they're not, they're not given the opportunity to read it. So the document and has to stand on its own, but so to each, each section. So to be able to bring that together as a product that requires a dedicated team. There are some smart reuse. There's some standards that a company can apply. Here's how I manage risk management. I have a risk management template and I have the same kind of colors and schemes and how I convey how I manage risks. Here's how I do schedules. Here's how we do, you know, peer reviews. And here's how I do systems and software engineering, those process related things. There's a lot of smart reuse that, that a proposal development center can have in place to reduce the cost per page on your proposal. But when it comes time for the solution, the story and the price, your cost and pricing to come to life on the paper or a presentation, it takes a dedicated team and there are no shortcuts to that. You trust the process and you'll walk it through. Maybe you can compress it because it's less volume, but getting the message very concise and clear still takes some time. It takes those iterations of storyboarding, outlines to writing the content, you know, pink teams and red team reviews to massage the messaging and, and be consistent across the board. Uh, so trust the process, understand there's not shortcuts, but there are smart ways to capitalize on reuse for other proposals you've done. And there should be some core framework capabilities that you can be, bring forward in terms of your artwork to drive some of your costs down. But your solution is unique. They're picking someone that they want to work with, they know and they trust and it's, and it's relevant. And you have to convey it in the story because you don't know who's not going to show up for the, that one or two days to evaluate your proposal. You may have spent a lot of time developing a relationship with two or three people that were going to be there. And all of a sudden their spouse just disclose that, hey, I work for Team Y and they're bidding on the job that you're evaluating. You have to recluse yourself, dear. And that's happened many times where you there are relationships in those communities where one spouse is working on a government side and another spouse is working in the industry. And you find out towards the end when they formalize source election evaluation board, there are some players that can't play. So your proposal, your story has to stand on its own. So do the best you can to, to have that team, that cohesive team stay together through capture and into proposal and to delivery. I love it. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier was the importance of past performance and I love that, that you brought this up because I see so many business development executives take this position of once we win the opportunity, we're going to push that to the delivery team. And it oftentimes is that disconnect from 
the capture and win into a transition into execution and delivery is a problem. And how would you ensure that you and your team stayed connected to the customer post-award? Great question. You know, my experience has been the capture proposal team. Some of those same individuals are on the execution team, but depending on the size of the program and the type of work, whether it's an RDF or EMD phase, or it's a production type phase, there are good business reasons why you transition the program from capture proposal team to an execution team that's build to print or it's going into um, you know, full rate production. That capture manager and the program manager that work those efforts, if they're not transitioning, they need to be part of a transition strategy. Communicating the vision and our commitment. Uh, many times we presented you know, executive summary of the proposal to the execution team. We introduce those. If we're bringing new key folks on board, we introduce them to the customer. We have one-on-one sessions. So we're socializing the individual and giving them an opportunity to develop a rapport. And you do that through the process of your, your program milestones, as well as your kickoff. Your kickoff meeting, you set the stage for success, bringing in the customers, the stakeholders, and again, you renew the commitment is many times, even though you won and you had a great proposal, a customer may have something else in mind and they, they want changes or something's changed in the real world situation and they, they want an engineering change proposal already. So having that initial kickoff and expectation and shared vision with your stakeholders keeps that train moving. There's a part about keeping your program alive and keeping your program sold. Keep it alive by good execution. Keeping it sold is through communication and communicating that vision with your customer and to your teammates and your employees so that they understand what it is that they're trying to deliver in the end state. I love that. And it it really, execution needs to be part of the business development like life cycle and when we founded our program execution practice area all those years ago, 30 years ago, there were a lot of our clients that were puzzled by this. And even then we said, this is critical to the business development strategy. And if you have poor past performance, (laughs) it doesn't matter what kind of approach and strategy that you have, you're not going to either keep that opportunity sold, keep it sold, or win other opportunities in in this swim lane because, and especially now with the CPAR reports and all of the various past performance databases that every customer can access this is such a critical part of the business de- overall business development strategy. The other piece of program execution and transition that I think is interesting is oftentimes, especially in these large campaigns, you're going to work this campaign for a few years. You'll build the proposal. You'll submit the proposal. It may be a year in the evaluation phase. I mean, we've seen these 
awards drag on even two years after the proposal has been submitted. We often see our clients call us back in and say, what did you promise? <laughs> what, what was in the proposal? It, it had been so long since the proposal was submitted until the award and bringing back the capture team, the subject matter experts and the proposal leads in this transition, I think has been really valuable and positioned the delivery team for success in ensuring that they really understand what was promised in the proposal and, and reminding them of what the customer's expectations are, what's changed, who has changed on the team. And you can only do that through the, this relationship, customer relationship that is so critical to this. Uh, Rob, we've talked about a, a lot in this, and I'd love to spend some more time with you focused on some of these various disciplines. But in, in our discussion, we've really touched on the every one of the LSI business development practice areas. We've touched on strategy, uh, process, even tr training a little bit on the strategy side of and organic foundation of organizations. We've talked a lot about capture and the importance of the relationship and understanding the customer's needs, which you're only going to be able to get that kind of information, that in-depth understanding of what their challenges are, what their vision is through the relationship. We've talked a, a lot about the education in this relationship, at the education of your capabilities, and then transitioning into pro the proposal phase. We've talked a lot about the importance of proposal development and telling the story, and then program execution. Those are really all of the LSI practice areas. And because we have this incredible capability and subject matter experts in each of these practice areas, we've been successful in helping our clients win these huge campaigns. Talk to me for a minute about, we mentioned this early on in our discussion, the, this career path of business development. We've seen this exodus out of business development, especially in the last two or three years. I think the COVID has accelerated and exacerbated this, but we have, we've really seen a long time career business development executives get out of the business. We've seen companies that have said, we're not going to invest and build organizations around business development. We're just not going to do it. They've got these ideas of, yeah, we're, we're going to give it to a division lead or a line of business lead. And yet we, we're working with a lot of young, very talented individuals that I, I see could, could be the future of this industry. What advice would you have for individuals who are either considering entering this space or 
new to business development and have inherited an organization? What you've been doing this for so long, you're really a thought leader in this science of business development. What what advice would you have for this rising generation? Great question, and I, I appreciate the lead. You know, for for me, I found it very beneficial to uh, to stay well read. Really understand the market that you're in, understand the technologies, understand your competitors, constantly researching. I spend at least an hour a day, if not more. Uh, I'm on duty and off duty, uh, if you will, just reading about an emerging technology or an evolving market segment, who's playing. I just, me, I personally find it very interesting to, um, to see companies enter into a new space and start to grow from a fledgling technology to a market leader. It's, it's very exciting. So understanding the domain, and if you don't understand the domain, partner with someone, you know, get some mentoring or bring someone on board to your team that really understands that domain, whether it be ISR, command and control, whether it be land forces, air, space, cyber, understanding the domain that you're in is critical as, as well. So if you're going to lead business development, you have to be aware of, of what's, you don't have to be the expert, but you at least have to be aware of what the technologies and the domains are and what the warfighter is going through. So having a coach, having a mentor or building a team with domain expertise is really important. In training, don't sell your team short on training. There is an enormous amount of good training out there from understanding how to do proposals, whether you're going to be a proposal manager or not, as a capture manager, you need to understand how that sausage is made. It is an art and a science, and it can be grueling or it can be well-organized and executed flawlessly, if you will, if you understand how proposals come together and why you're doing it and how you're doing it. It makes it so much easier and less stressful for the team if you understand how to produce that product or how that product is going to get produced. Understand your process and how your decision makers are going to make decisions. What information needs to be shared? Engage your customers. Help your customers understand their own problem. Working with them to understand what their challenges are, you know, their personal limits on risk, how they make decisions is really important. Developing a persona on the decision makers and influencers that you're engaged with both on the buyer side as well as the industry side, makes your ability to help shape the procurement as well as it helps your ability to put the right information together at the right time so that the executive leadership team can make a decision about do we move forward in the pipeline. I've got through a pursuit review on now I can get to the strategy, I can get to a bid decision. Yes, I'm comfortable, I can execute, I can deliver on that commitment um, yeah, we're going to have price X, I'm going to deliver Y, and we're going to be successful and have great past performance and I'm going to meet my sales and earnings for that program. It's good business for me because that drives engineering training, it drives program management, it drives strategic recruiting and hiring. There's just so much to the business that as a business development person, you have to understand your role in it and all your other stakeholders internally, how they're going to make decisions about whether or not they're going to support that pursuit 
or that's just that's just too much. It's too much risk for them to step forward because you need engineering, you need QA, you need your ops team, you need your supply chain, you need your program managers and the PL leads to buy into, yeah, we can deliver that. And that makes good business sense for us to be engaged in that program early on in that capture. We're working with a large client and I had a recent meeting with vice president of business development for this organization. He has a target this year of $5 billion and he's very young. He's, uh, I would guess he's 30 years old and he pulled me aside in a recent meeting and said, how have you stayed in this business for so long? How, and why should I continue this? And I've got these other offers to go lead other organizations. And I said, it's fun. This is, it's exciting. The pursuit is exciting to see these wins is exciting. And he's got this amazing team supporting him. And, and I encouraged him to not go pursue these other opportunities that he could spend his career in business development and it it would be fun and i really think that he's going to stay in but i just i i see so many of the thought leaders of of business development retiring or saying you know, I'm going to go do something else. And this young generation is really struggling to see how amazing this career could be. And so I just, I encourage individuals that are creative and love that pursuit and the, the win, that this winning mentality to, to stay in and, and pursue this as your career not go off and do something, you know, lead a, a delivery team, which is often what happens, as you know. So let me ask you one last thing as we wrap up. I love this about you. You were the former chief of police for Golden Valley, North Dakota. <laughs> Talk to me about how in the world did you go from being the chief of police to this amazing business development executive? It seems like a lifetime ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, I started my career in law enforcement. I had the privilege of serving as a chief of police and uh, later a deputy sheriff with Pierce County, North Dakota, based out of rugby. Uh, it was fun. I really enjoyed it. I had an opportunity to um, go serve my country in the U.S. Army. So I transitioned from law enforcement into the U.S. Army. And it was just the right time for my family and I at the time to, to make that transition. But uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I was also the assistant fire chief. You know, I made some additional dollars by uh, pushing snow uh, in the wintertime. So I got to drive the big cat with the, the loader on the front. That was always fun. So but clean the clean the streets, have coffee, I'll change, put my uniform on and, and greet people for my second cup of coffee uh, in the morning. It was a small community. It was impacted uh, by energy, you know, coal and oil and coal gasification. So we had a very large population of construction workers and electricians and 
engineers and chemists. And, you know, you had a small town that just every town just exploded with growth. And so you had no infrastructure. You had to, you know, do grant, you know, submit proposals for grants to get funding for your department. I did the same with the fire department. Um, it was fun. I get to meet a lot of people and, and work through just everyday challenges uh, for the community. And it was, a, it was a great time. It was very humbling to go from that to a uh, private first class in the U.S. Army. And there's been times in my career where, you know, I've, I've been humbled and uh, it's really good growth, personal growth opportunities to go through those changes. I love it. Rob, thanks so much. Uh, we've covered a lot and I want to talk to you some more, as I said, about some of the various disciplines and explore these subcategories within our practice areas. This has been fun and I really appreciate you sharing some of the thought leadership that you have contributed to our business, to our industry, and I'm just so excited that you're part of our team. So if anyone has questions about this episode, we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot about the LSI methodology and and the various practice areas uh, around strategy, process, training, capture, proposal development, and program execution. There's a lot of moving parts in this process. And if you have a need for uh, support in any of these areas. If you're pursuing a campaign and you need help in building the strategy or penetrating a an organization, a, a customer set, if you need a re- help in establishing the relationship, in building your proposal, in program execution, any of the LSI disciplines, please reach out to us. We'll have Rob contact you and help work through whatever your requirements are. Rob, I really appreciate your time and uh, all of your great work in this discipline of business development. And it really is a discipline and and that uh, you're part of our team. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate the opportunity.